Well, David Sirota, welcome back to the program. Um, it's been, a lot's been going on with you since the last time we spoke. Congrats on all the, the big success, a big shot movie producer guy now. <laughs> yeah. That's cool. Yeah, uh, it's been a kind of a wild ride uh, through Hollywood yeah. and then the Oscars. It was it was crazy. What was that like for you? I mean, it's like you, you've had such a, it's, you've had an interesting time the last couple of years, going from the, the highs and lows of the Bernie campaign, the, you know, a lot of lows, especially at the end part there. Um, and how was that for you to, to find yourself, um, at you know, getting, getting nominated for an Oscar? I mean, that's not something you had to expect, right? After no, that, that was not part that of the life plan. Um, no. <laughs> um, you know, I, I I was excited about the movie Don't Look Up. Uh, I I was actually shocked it ever got made because of what it is um, and the message that it had. And so having it go all the way to the Oscars was just incredible. And um, you know, we didn't win, but just being nominated was it was a huge honor. Um, and we won the the WGA award for the for the screenplay, which was fantastic. Um, and yeah, it was a it was an adventure in a world that I don't usually ever have any uh, contact with, and um, you know I got to meet a bunch of stars, and and actually it was valuable in the sense of talk talk about the need for them to use their platforms to sound the climate alarm. So that was that was useful. Um, but you know I was kind of a stranger in a strange land. I'm a I'm a journalist, and um, you know Hollywood is not a, a place I have a lot of familiarity with. Yeah, and I, I think, you, so you said you were surprised it got made, and I think we're all glad it got made because it did a really good job skewering the media um, and broader culture and society and how people would react in a scenario like that. And we ended up seeing that play out a few months later in that BBC interview where they had a young climate activist on to talk about uh, the the dangers looming and the IPP, IPCC reports that people aren't paying attention to. And it was almost like, <laughs> it was just like life imitating art. And I, I think The Daily Show did a really good mashup juxtaposing clips from the movie with clips of those hosts just kind of doing the same sorts of things, like treating it like just any other story and not... Uh, you know, a, a, a an existential threat, and trying to you know call out different uh, consumer choices that she that that young woman had made, like how she got her clothing, and just treating it as trivial. Um, how did you feel when you saw that clip? Because this was so many people pointed to "Don't Look Up" as like, oh, this is exactly what they're talking about in that film. Well, well, I've been saying for a long time it feels like we're living inside the movie, and then that was the. Uh, the obvious proof that we are, in fact, living inside the movie. Um, you know, so for those critics who suggested that the movie was too over the top or too uh, too much of a caricature, I actually think it proved that the movie was potentially understated. Uh, that that the movie was like too quaint and 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 too nice about the world that we actually live in. Um, uh, so it was, I guess, not surreal is not the right thing to say it's more like you know i this is what the movie was about and i think the reason it the movie did so well you know the second most viewed movie on the world's largest streaming platform i think in part it did so well because i think people saw the world that they're living in there and and i was you know neil degrasse tyson who said he thought it was the best documentary he had ever seen it's kind of a (laughs) tongue-in-cheek joke but um it's it's disturbing it's 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 upsetting and um 
you know, I, I think that if you care about the future of the planet and the future of the human species, what what's going on is should be deeply disturbing. I, I, I think that uh, corporate media has a has a huge uh, a lot of blame for what has happened to our world. It, that is, if you believe that that the way we think about issues matters to what policies we pass or don't pass to deal with problems in front of us. If you, I, I believe that the media environment that we live in and the, and the discourse and the narrative and the news and news conditions that we live in create what we think is possible and not possible. And corporate media constantly downplaying or distracting from uh, the climate crisis that threatens all life on the planet I think downplays this, the urgency of the crisis, which then downplays or undermines the political impetus to pass the kinds of policies that are necessary to deal with that crisis. Uh, and, you know, we're still living in that media environment, and I'm not sure it's going to change. Speaking about not passing things, um, you know, <laughs> when, you know, when Joe Biden was campaigning, especially when they were having this, this kind of... Um, comparison of different values between the Bernie campaign and the Joe Biden campaign, um, and especially when the the people from the Biden administration were kind of trying to speak to people that were uh, excited by Bernie Sanders, specifically in like what his approach to climate policy was going to be, and the kind of the thing that Joe Biden and surrogates would say as well, yet no, we don't want to do a Green New Deal or we have difference of opinion, but we do want to do, we have this big, bold, trillion dollar climate agenda. And they pointed all these things on their platform that they wanted to do climate wise and kind of presenting it as like, of course, like maybe it's not as radical as what you want. We're still proposing all this really progressive, uh, climate oriented, you know, green agenda to contrast with the conservative movement. Are you surprised? a year and a half or however long it's been into the Biden administration, how little they've accomplished on that front. Like the, the idea that they would head into the midterms having done nothing on climate. I think I'm really cynical about liberals and the democratic party, but I don't think I even expected that. I thought there would be some kind of bone that they would throw at least to these activists or the, the community that cares about these environmental issues, just as an example that we're doing something. And it's been literally nothing. Like, is that, are you surprised by the, the extent to which they've completely abdicated any responsibility in, in terms of passing climate legislation? Well, as a as a somebody who's followed the career of Joe Biden and reported on the career of Joe Biden for a long time, I, I wish I could say I was surprised, but I'm not. Joe Biden has a very familiar political formula. Give great impassioned speeches, sound like you're going to do something, and then expect that nobody will actually pay attention to whether or not you actually do those things. Uh, and it's a reliable formula in a corporate media environment that doesn't do much follow-up at all. Uh, I mean, just as a, as a separate scientific uh, science example, uh, this is a guy whose administration was lauded by uh, liberal think tanks and professional liberals in Washington when he came out and said he uh, the White House is going to support vac uh, waivers, patent waivers for vaccines. Huge, I don't know, two-day news cycle, big deal. It's been a year plus since that happened. And we at The Lever published a story about how this is going to test his administration and really his deep ties to the pharmaceutical industry and the pharmaceutical industry donors. And we were kind of laughed at and lampooned and lambasted for suggesting that there may end up being a gap between the rhetoric and the reality. And now it's a year <laughs> and a half later and nothing has happened on that score. 
Uh, and well, they got to make sure China doesn't benefit too much from it, though. So you got to <laughs> right. you got to be careful with that, right? Uh, uh, and, and and the thing is, is that like I'm not surprised. I'm really only surprised by people who are totally surprised that Joe Biden says things and then doesn't do the things he says he's going to do. I'm surprised by that because that's what he's been doing his whole career, and he's been banking on uh, uh, political press corps that doesn't bother to follow the details at all. And so when it comes to climate, I'm not surprised. I'm disgusted, but not surprised. Yeah, it's been across the board, uh, a ton of lofty promises and descriptions that he's going to be, you know, the next FDR. He wants an FDR-sized presidency and then just walkbacks or or cave-ins or whatever on all of these issues, whether it's student debt, climate action, even just his core, his core agenda, build back better, just very little. And I, I'm struggling to even get optimistic about some of the other things that he's talking about. It just seems ultimately geared to try to prop up Democrats in the midterms, like, you know, taking on corporate power and uh, tax equity, things like that. I just don't see it, it happening. Uh, but we do have some good things to celebrate. And you wrote about this in The Lever, your piece entitled Dem Voters Flip Off party leaders and their big donors. And we're talking on Wednesday and last night we saw a handful of progressive victories uh, in Pennsylvania and Oregon. And that's, I think, something that we could definitely celebrate. But I'm trying to be cautious about just how excited I get just because like, I'm sure I'm sure the guns are going to come out. And those same uh, mega donors who tried to tank these candidates over the past few weeks are just going to pump money into the Republican opponents now. Um, so I'm curious, David, if you could give us kind of an overview from from your perspective, what the takeaway is from last night. So we saw Fetterman win, we saw Summer Lee win, and it looks like, uh, her name's escaped me, but another progressive is going to win in Oregon over uh, Kurt Schrader, who is uh, the guy who, <laughs> who helped block the drug price fixing uh, legislation in, in Congress. So what's yeah. your takeaway, David? So so I think that the, the, these elections, look, I didn't have a lot of hope for these elections because there was so much money poured in by uh, super PACs by, uh, that are funded by well, – one is funded by an oil billionaire. Another is funded by a crypto billionaire. Uh, many of these, to- these donors are big donors to Joe Biden and the Democratic Party. Uh, they, they, they pumped – a ton of money uh, into these races through groups that wave the banner of of pro-Israel policy, even though the ads had nothing to do with uh, uh, Israel. Um, and I, 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 so I didn't have a lot of hope that the progressive candidates who were getting outspent were going to win because they were being outspent by so much. But in fact, uh, if the results hold, you have a situation where the Senate Democratic nominee ran against the Democratic establishment and won, also ran explicitly against Joe Manchin in Pennsylvania, um, uh, in a state that neighbors West Virginia and won that primary. So that's a that, that's huge. Uh, the Pittsburgh race, the Summer Lee race you mentioned, she got uh, outspent by those super PACs. And if the if the results hold, it, it sure seems like she's going to pull it out. Uh, and then in in the two Oregon districts, um, Kurt Schrader, I mean, that was a race. I mean, it's just, I mean, it's incredible that what happened in that race, um, in the sense that Kurt Schrader is a guy who cast key votes, uh, to kill the Democratic Party's promised drug pricing legislation. He also helped Republicans kill the Build Back Better bill and was rewarded for that with an endorsement 
by Joe Biden. And then the pharmaceutical industry, which has already given him a lot of money to his campaign, uh, its front group came in and, and tried to spend his opponent into the ground. And it, it looks like right now that he's going to end up losing his primary to Jamie McLeod Skinner. And then in the in the other district, contested district, there was the crypto billionaire Sam Bankman-Fried. Uh, his super PAC pumped, I think it was eight or nine million dollars into that race, which is just an insane amount of money uh, in, in a House race, uh, to back a, a, an almost completely unknown candidate. It was almost like a like a, like a a test. Can we elect somebody who's absolutely and completely unknown, has no political profile at all? Seems like has barely even been in the district, at least by media accounts. Uh, and the state representative, Andrea Salinas, uh, she ended up winning, uh, winning that race against all of that money. So I think the takeaway is that that well-organized progressive candidates can still make a go of it, even against huge money. I mean, it's very it's 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 very difficult for them to win. Uh, but I think actually last night was kind of a pivot point. I think the corporate faction of the Democratic Party was trying to deliver a death blow to what was left of the progressive movement and deter other politicians from being progressive candidates, saying basically, if you're a progressive candidate, you're going to get just destroyed by big money. And then I think that unexpectedly and in a good way, the progressive movement, such as it is, uh, ended up surviving and actually winning some key races, saying that, you know what, to, that that big money doesn't get to completely buy every single election. So I think we're still in the middle of this very heated battle between the corporate wing of the party uh, and the and the uh, progressive wing. And, and I should mention, you know, the the point of what we wrote at the lever, I think, has been a little bit lost in in the discussion about all this, which is that these billionaires and the super PACs are sort of portrayed as these independent operators meddling in local elections, and they are that. But the one thing they're not is, in my view, is independent. They are meddling in elections, but I'm not sure that they're independent in the sense that there's a ton of overlap between these groups, these donors, and the Democratic Party leadership. Uh, and, and, you know, it was 12 or 13 of the consulting firms that, that worked for these super PACs have worked for official party committees. Um, in that one of those Oregon races, the actual official super PAC of the House Democrats intervened with the crypto billionaire for the corporate candidate against the progressive candidate who ended up winning. And that's important because what it shows is that the Democratic leadership is not pretending to be neutral anymore. There used to be this whole idea that the Democratic leadership would 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 publicly remain neutral in primaries to out of the idea that, you know, local Democratic voters should be able to pick who they want as their representative. Now that now there's no pretense. The mask is off. This is a a a relatively coordinated effort by the Democratic leadership and its donors and the donors super PACs to try crush progressive candidates uh, whose policy positions are inconsistent with the donors goals in terms of buying uh, buying legislation and potentially inconsistent with the current leadership's goals of just remaining in power. Uh, the more upstart progressive candidates you have who go into Congress, uh, the more of a threat they are to overthrow uh, the current Democratic leadership in the House and the Senate. Uh, one thing that I think is kind of interesting that's happened here as well, because you, you, this, I think, coincides with something you were saying about your portrayal uh, or about the portrayal of the media in, in your film, Don't Look Up, um, and about how the role that this kind of corporate media establishment plays in, uh, you know, 
uh, setting the boundaries of what is and is not possible um, and kind of being a messaging arm for the corporate wing of the of the party or the leadership of the party, uh, as you're describing it. And I think one kind of interesting thing is that, I mean, uh, there's been like the, the party has seemed poised to blame the left for whatever is about to happen in these kind of midterm elections. And they have this kind of narrative that's already kind of in place where, you know, we tried to do everything and, and you know, we're being punished by young voters who just want to get everything handed to them. Uh, you know, we went too woke. We tried to defund the police too much and we turned off people. And this kind of narrative is being established that it, it's the, the Democrats lack of, of pragmatic incrementalism that is that is causing them these these issues and and alienating them from voters um that's the kind of narrative that's being framed in the corporate press the corporate wing of the party as the kind of interesting thing about these these initial results um of these primaries is that there's there's democratic constituencies that are saying like well no we actually blame the the joe manchin wing of the party they're explicitly saying this and they're explicitly pointing to their lack of passing a big bold agenda that they kind of promised as the reason that's motivating for them to vote for these candidates and it really flies in the face i think of the narrative that is being that is being crafted about this by both the establishment the party establishment and the media absolutely and there's a key stat uh, that we wrote about at the lever um, from an nbc poll and it showed that nearly two-thirds of democratic uh, primary voters uh, when asked, here's here's what they was asked. In thinking about Democratic candidates in your state and how they approach issues like health care, climate change, college affordability, and the economy, which of the following comes closer to describing to describing the candidate you prefer? 63% of Democratic primary voters now say they prefer someone who proposes large-scale policies that cost more and might be harder to pass into law, but could bring major change on these issues. That is up from 53% in February of 2020. So the way I read that is that there was about 10% of Democratic primary voters in 2020 that just wanted to go back to brunch, and they just wanted things to go back to quote-unquote normal. And now, uh, a year and a half into Biden's presidency, where not much has changed, where Biden has, the one promise he's lived up to is that nothing would fundamentally change, now you've got that that 10% has joined the other 53% in saying, actually, the real problem is the Democrats aren't doing anything. They're not doing enough. They're not doing anything. Uh, and I think that's a restive party base that's pissed off with incumbents, with the party leadership. And I think that restive that that restiveness is good. And, and I think if you're sat, I mean, I, I asked a question on, on Twitter a couple days ago. It's like, who thinks the Democratic Party leadership is like really nailing it right now? Who thinks they're like, yeah, they're, they're totally crushing it. Like they're absolutely nailing. Like nobody thinks that. In fact, well, there's a couple of very popular Twitter accounts like the Biden delivered or whatever it is. One that right. they've, they're very adamant about this, about all the wonderful things that they've done. Right. I mean, but, but, but in, in the country at large, you look at the, at the same poll, it showed that the Democratic Party out of they poll they poll tested a bunch of institutions. I think it was the Democratic Party has the lowest approval rating of any major political institution in America right now. So like no no almost no regular person walking around who's not, you know, a political junkie, a team blue zombie thinks that the Democratic Party is like totally crushing it right now. And so I think that hopefully I think if you don't want to see right-wing fascists take over the government, hopefully that restiveness among the democratic rank and file will actually um push the congress to actually and biden to actually deliver real material gains for regular people and that that will improve the chances of progressive candidates getting elected and not allowing 
right-wing fascists to get elected. At least that's the hope. What we saw in this primary, so you mentioned you mentioned Kurt Schrader got endorsed by Biden. That was Biden's first endorsement of the primary season. And we see how they are still standing with Henry Cuellar in this moment where Roe is on the precipice of being overturned. He is the only anti-choice Dem in the House left. He is wildly corrupt. <laughs> He's, you know, potentially being investigated by the FBI. But Pelosi, uh, Hoyer, Clyburn, Jeffries, they're all standing with him. He voted against and, Biden's agenda, first of all, so yeah. seems important yeah, and he voted well. with He voted with Trump 70% of the time during Trump's first two years. <laughs> and they would rather have him than a progressive woman of color. And you see, you know, they act like they're so concerned about Roe and they're so concerned about climate change and they're so concerned about fixing drug prices and all these other issues. But when it comes down to it, they would rather have people who stand in the way on those issues than a progressive. So Bernie puts out a letter this week, says, look, part of the problem is super PACs. Part of the problem is corporate money. You need to get this out of the party because, yes, it's great that Summer Lee and um, John Fetterman won and we see some incremental progressive victories, but they shouldn't have to have these steep uphill climbs just by trying to participate in the democratic process. The same, the, you know, these are people who are bemoaning attacks on our on our democracy from the right, but at the same time, they're using these colossal, like huge corporate influences uh, in our own primaries to keep progressives out because they ultimately care about power. So between that, the reliance on on super PACs to keep progressives out. And this also in New York, this restructuring where they're <laughs> kind of edge trying to edge out a, a moderately progressive uh, House member. Um, and across the board, I mean, just it doesn't seem like they they really care. They are just they just want power. And the same people who have been in power for a while want to cling to it as much as they can. It doesn't matter if nothing gets done. So what what can be done? I, I, I think Bernie's letter was great, but it doesn't seem like anybody really cares who is close to the levers of power. Yeah, I think that's. I, I think there's there's truth to that. Uh, I, I think that. I think. Listen, I think we have to understand that the Democratic Party is terrible at passing legislation. I should say the Democratic leadership terrible at passing legislation. They're terrible at defeating Republicans in general elections. Um, they are by evidence of polls. They're terrible at getting the public to actually like the Democratic Party. Uh, and if you look at what's going on in New York with redistricting and how that blue state is potentially going to lose Democratic representation, they're terrible even at preserving Democratic representation in Democratic states. But the two things they are really good at is preserving the Democratic leadership is they're really good at preserving their own power inside of the party. And they're really good at crushing the American left. I mean, if you want to crush the American left, you send in the Democrats, right? They're like mission impossible. <laughs> yeah. We need the special the agents thing, yeah. to crush the left, like the special, like the NFL special teams of crushing the, the Pro Bowl special teams of, cr of crushing the left is the Democratic leadership today's democratic leadership it, it wasn't always that but but today's democratically nancy pelosi is basically terrible at everything other than preserving her own power in the democratic party through her relationships with big corporate donors and she's very good at crushing the left she is terrible at everything else same thing for steny hoyer same thing for jim clyburn they are absolutely abominable at the things that the public actually needs them to do. But they are all-star Pro Bowl players when it comes to crushing the American left. And I think that's, I think once 
they decided that that was their specialty, then it meant they had to go, they have to always go for it to try to crush progressive candidates. Because if there are too many progressive House members in the House, then Jim Clyburn and Steny Hoyer and Nancy Pelosi can just get voted out of leadership. And so that's essentially what I think is going on. So we clearly haven't reached critical mass where there are enough uh, progressive power brokers in the institutions of power to throw that leadership out. Yeah, it's amazing how ruthless they can be when it comes to uh, anyone, anyone presenting a more progressive vision of how they could maybe be governing versus when it comes time to negotiate with the you know, right wing Republicans or even in transient, you know, centrist members of their own party. Suddenly they're totally inept. And what you're describing, though, is kind of interesting. You know, you talk about the, the ability of the Democratic Party establishment to crush the left. Obviously, this is something that you personally have a lot of experience in, um, considering what, you know, what happened on the Bernie campaign. And I, I don't want to relitigate that stuff too much. My understanding, uh, just from like uh, after the campaign, just kind of the breakdown of how the campaign uh, ended up going, was that there was kind of a faction within the Bernie campaign that wanted to be more hostile and wanted to go after uh, Biden more forcefully and wanted to go after the Democratic Party establishment more forcefully. And there was a kind of faction that was encouraging a more, you know, tepid uh, compromise uh, approach. However much truth there is to that, I think we know what side of that debate that you ended up on. But is that you? Do you think that's the approach that these uh, progressive, dare I say, insurgents in the in the uh, in the Democratic Party is that the approach? Do you think that they could take? Like you know, you've talked about the the role that the leadership plays in crushing the left. Do you think that you know leftist candidates and 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 more progressive Democrats should start? treating the establishment with the same sort of hostility that they get treated like both in in people that are just joining the party now and or like on that level how do you think it's gone for over the last year and a half of the progressive uh, members of the democratic party the squad etc how do you think that they've done over this period and do you think that they should take a more forceful stance against the leadership of the party or do you think that that what they've been doing in terms of kind of trying to play nice with the establishment where do you think where do you land on that well, I, look, I definitely was uh, one of the people on the Bernie campaign who thought that the core communications problem on the Bernie campaign was, was not willing to draw a sharp contrast, uh, consistently uh, sharp contrast with Joe Biden. Uh, and I lost that battle inside the campaign. Uh, and um, I'm, I'm still upset about it, frankly. Um, and I'm upset about the way... Um, Without going into details, I was ultimately, at some point, I was ultimately listened to, but I thought it was too late. Uh, the contrast needed to be drawn from the entire campaign, and I was just sort of, we, we had our moments, to be clear, but, but I, I, I just, I didn't win that internal battle. Uh, and, you know, maybe it's because I'm not, I'm not good at palace intrigue, maybe it's because I'm not, I'm not um, you know, I'm not, a, I'm not a great inside player, but, but I didn't win that 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 battle inside the campaign. And I'm not sure we would have won had we done exactly everything I wanted to do. So I'm not some all-seeing genius. Maybe we still wouldn't have won. I'm not sure. Uh, but I certainly believe that if you're if you're running for president against a, a quasi-incumbent, like a former vice president, you're going to have to rip the, the nomination out of the cold, dead hands of the establishment. And every past candidate for president who has won the Democratic nomination has done that. Uh, Barack Obama did that with Hillary Clinton, who was a quasi-incumbent. Bill Clinton did that uh, in the 92 race. And I, I think we didn't do that. And when, when the uh, challenger doesn't do that, that the quasi-incumbents can, can run a Rose Garden campaign and win, win the nomination. And I think that's what happened. Now, as it relates to the squad in a legislature, 
in a legislative setting. Look, I think it's always a, 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 a game of trade-offs between how far do we push the, uh, how antagonistic do we get with the leadership to try, uh, and and how how nice do we play to get the leadership to uh, embrace the policies we want as part of legislation that the entire party is pushing. And I think that's a very, it's not an easy game. And anyone who pretends this is easy is a bullshit artist. Uh, anybody who's worked in a legislature knows that, 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 that these are tactical questions that are difficult. And I think the question that has, I have arrived at is whether the differences that, or, or the disappointments that I have with the squad, with the Congressional Progressive Caucus, is it a difference over tactics or is it a difference over values? And I think for a while I was willing to, um, I didn't see compelling evidence that the squad or even rank and file Congressional Progressive Caucus members uh, uh, were being bad faith about their values, that their values were their values and that they were making a different strategic tactical set of decisions about how far to put fight and how far to push versus when to make compromise. And that I may disagree with them on the tactics, but I didn't necessarily think it was a disagreement on values. Of late, the tactics have been so weak, have been so pathetic have been so ineffective that I have to consider the possibility that some of these folks actually don't have the values that they purport to have. I think when Pramila Jayapal on the Congressional Progressive Caucus uh, endorses Nina Turner's opponent in that contested Ohio primary, that's not a tactical question. That's a values question. Um, when uh, the squad doesn't push as hard as it needs to push to, for instance, in this there's a microchips bill coming down the pike, uh, and the bill would allow uh, the, this money for microchip companies effectively to be used for stock buybacks and CEO pay, and Bernie Sanders tried to stop that, made a real effort to try to stop that in the Senate with real legislation. When the squad puts forward kind of half-assed legislation, and we reported on this at the lever, when they, when they put a like, sort of half-assed toothless, half toothless version of that legislation that purports to do that but doesn't actually do that, then I start to think, it's a values question. And there was an old saying that Paul Wellstone used to say, and I'll, I'll paraphrase here, but it was something to the effect of, you can say you're for various things, but ultimately, if you don't actually st stand up for those things, it's a signal that you may not actually be for them. And so, you know, I think the leadership has not been pushed nearly enough, and the leadership clearly does not fear the progressive faction of the party in the same way that it fears the mansion cinema wing of the party. Now, it's an asymmetrical balance. Manchin and Cinema are willing, obviously, to sabotage the entire party's agenda. They're willing to sabotage their own constituents. They're willing to sabotage Joe Biden's presidency. And I think good faith progressive lawmakers are always trying to not sabotage everything. Uh, they're always trying to trying to you know get half a loaf or a quarter of a loaf. And I think I I think I think brushing that off and pretending that oh you know. Uh, uh, they should be willing to sabotage everything, and that's a tactical decision. But I think uh, presuming that it's all selling out, I think is 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 too blunt a, a an instrument as a few is, is too is too imprecise a way to look at the situation. But I do think that that the squad and the progressive faction of the Democratic Party uh, at this point could be a lot more assertive. They they haven't been nearly as assertive as as they could be. They have a lot of power in the sense of their public platform. And I think it's fair to question whether their uh, 
unwillingness to use the kinds of tactics that are necessary is actually a values a values question, a values problem. I get the sense that they don't see the squad and to an extent the CPC as 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 big of a threat as they did when they first came into Congress and I think that's right. when the CPC was kind of, you know, trying to position itself as a uh, a caucus that would actually vote in a block, but specifically the squad, I don't I don't I don't think they see them as a threat anymore. I think they they see it as a group that's been kind of neutralized. And we saw how they reacted when they first came in, you know, they were like explicitly calling out and mocking things that they were proposing. Um, but also it just shows that they just don't like leadership doesn't really care when you have the same sorts of things from mansion and cinema. So cinema goes to the Arizona chamber of Congress, uh, commerce and talks about how there's no chance whatsoever. She would support any tax increases on corporations just a couple weeks ago and nothing, nothing from the white house, nothing from party leadership about how that is, you know, not in lockstep with party priorities because that's something they're currently trying to push and the uh, story came i think it was in politico a couple weeks ago that the official white house position is not to name mansion or call out mansion explicitly at all whatsoever and it's such a stark contrast from how they handled the squad yeah right (laughs) just like walking all over you but it works that's the thing i don't i don't understand because it works in 2020 when they are 2021, when they were first considering another COVID relief bill, they, you know, they sent Kamala Harris, West Virginia to stump. And then you saw his reaction when Bernie wrote that op-ed talking about how this would be good for West Virginians. And Manchin flipped out and told them, don't do that again. Don't ignore that part. But you could see that you're getting to him by doing this. Use the bully pulpit in his backyard and drive support for the things that you want to pass. Because when someone goes there and articulates how this would benefit them, they're going they're bound to support it. And they just don't they don't want to touch it. They don't want to acknowledge that these two people are blocking pretty much everything that they want to do. I think that's I think that's exactly right. And I think your your point about the Bernie op ed and the Kamala Harris statement or interview that she gave in West Virginia and Manchin freaking out. The funny thing was is that in social media among kind of team blue democratic apologists, especially with the with the Bernie op-ed, oh, you know, this is going to look, Bernie screwed it up. See Joe Manchin screaming and crying and whining and then, you know, this is obviously a, a bad call by Bernie. It was like, no, 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 no. Joe Manchin screaming and cry- and crying and whining is proof that the tactic is working. The person you're trying to pressure should feel uncomfortable. And when they feel uncomfortable, it's a sign that the pressure is working. I remember this, and I I hearken back to the Bernie Sanders campaign on what I think was one of the pivotal moments of the whole campaign was when Zephyr Teachout did that op-ed about Joe Biden, saying that Joe Biden has a corruption problem. And it wasn't about any kind of right-wing critique. It was about Biden's support for the bankruptcy bill written by the credit card companies and Biden, uh, I think it was corrupt trade deals. It was it was all policy stuff. And the media freaked out. Oh, Bernie Sanders surrogate is calling Joe Biden corrupt. And Joe Biden, you know, the Biden's campaign freaked out. How dare you? And my reaction was, this is fucking great. This is exactly <laughs> what's supposed to happen, right? You landed a punch. The guy you landed a punch on is now freaking out. Like, that's a sign that you've hit him where it hurts. Yeah. Because we're trying to 
So, you know, we're trying to win the election. That's <laughs> yes. the point here. The yeah. point is not to make Joe Biden happy or make Ron Klain, his campaign guy, happy. The point is to fucking win. And Bernie's reaction was to apologize to Joe Biden, saying, you know, he, he disavowed the op-ed, said he wished it wasn't written, and he apologized. And I think, obviously, the tactics of that are terrible tactics, because then, then your story goes from Joe Biden has a corruption problem, and let's see what the problem is, you know, to Bernie Sanders is apologizing. So tactically, it's, it's, I thought it was a bad call. And just um, on the merits, it was a sign that, to me, that the campaign wasn't willing to make the contrast that would, would need to be made to take down an incumbent. And it's the same thing vis-a-vis -vis Joe Manchin or, or Cinema that if, if the first sign of them squirming and freaking out prompts the Democratic Party leaders to back off, it means that they're more serious about making Joe Manchin and Cinema comfortable than they are about actually delivering on their legislative promises. Well, and this touches on something I think you got into the last time you were on this show, David, which is that it, it kind of seems like from the way that they've approached this issue that uh, the Biden administration wants credit for being progressive for proposing all this progressive legislation. It's like you want to be framed as the new FDR without actually following through on anything. And just in terms of like, well, we wanted to do this and this and we couldn't. Um, but when you have these issues where you have people in your own party, also going back to the idea that Biden campaigned on, I'm going to get Republicans involved and I'm the, I'm the big deal maker. I'm going to get everyone involved. Um, and then to have your people in your own party, you know, completely veto your entire agenda that you campaigned on. And when you don't really do anything like that or respond to that in any way, or to, I mean, to, you talked about going on the bully pulpit in, in Manchin's home state, or even just going on TV every week and saying, this is what we want to do. This, this is the PRO Act. This is what it does. This is our environmental policy. This is what that's going to do. This is what it's going to mean for you. This is exactly why we can't pass it right now. And name names of who's doing that week after week after week. You know, that would be a sense that, okay, they actually want to pass this agenda. But when they propose this stuff, they allow someone in their own party to say no to everything. And then they just kind of give up without putting any pressure on that person. Yet the inescapable conclusion from that is that they want credit for proposing these things, but don't actually have any interest in passing this big progressive agenda. Because there was some pretty bold... Uh, ideas in this in this build back better framework and they were campaigning on even though it wasn't anything like to like what bernie was proposing but that's the they obama campaign on a lot of yeah exactly they still campaigned on a lot of good stuff barack obama fundamentally understood at least at that period of time unfortunately that lots of liberals just want the speech they don't care about the policy they want the press release they want the rhetoric they want the speech uh but they don't actually care about the details of policy. They don't actually necessarily care about what actually gets done in the real world. That for lots of liberals, politics is just another version of a home team sport. Uh, and I think Joe Biden operates in the same way. I'm going to give a speech. I'm going to say, hey, Amazon, here we come. And then I'm going to give Amazon a $10 billion federal contract in violation of my campaign promise to deny federal contracts to corporate union busters. Uh, and and the, the premise or the thing that Biden is betting on is that Democratic voters only want the rhetoric and either won't pay attention or actively do not care about the actual policy. And and for a long time, that's been a good bet in the sense of, I mean, it's, a, it's sad, but it's been a reliable bet that's come true for top of the ticket Democratic politicians. But I think that stat that I mentioned to you from the NBC poll where now 63% of Democratic primary voters 
actually want real change, don't want incrementalism, suggests that reality is finally catching up to the average rank-and-file Democratic voter, that shit has gotten so bad that even the average normie liberal is like, you know what, maybe the rhetoric alone isn't good enough. Maybe, maybe things actually do need to change. And so that, to me, is the most optimistic, encouraging part of what's going on right now is, yes, the individual electoral wins uh, this week, but that plus the polling data suggests a much more restive Democratic Party base and that that is that is less inclined to buy the Obama Biden bullshit tactics of I'm going to give a speech and then not actually deliver. I think with the Obama years, just the passage of the ACA gave a lot of Democrats something to fall back on. It was like, well, yeah, he might be doing, he might not be doing X, Y, and Z, but we got healthcare passed, you know, and that's something that did impact a lot of people pretty quickly. Biden doesn't have that. Like his only real accomplishment is infrastructure, and that's going to be something people won't see or experience for a very long time, if at all. And they don't have something to point to to justify his candidacy or his, his administration. And I, I think it's, it's, it's probably a factor in why people now want something and you have these villains that you can point to in mansion and cinema but i do yeah i think you're right i think people are finally starting to see through it that said i think the reactions last night uh in the wake of these progressive gains have me a bit worried for the general it just already i already i'm worried about the general uh, because it's just historically not good for people for parties in power but also they're saying like, you know, the prognosticators and, you know, expert pundits are, you know, shifting their races from leans Democrat to toss up and, oh, you know, Fetterman has no chance of winning now. And some early is probably different, but they were saying that, you know, Fetterman probably uh, has a much tougher uh, race now than if it was Connor Lamb, which is such a ludicrous claim to make just immediately after he wins and you have no idea who he's even going to run against but they were already certain that this is a much different race now also um, also just just yeah. on that specific race the notion that connor lamb who had never run in a statewide race and now in his first statewide race got absolutely destroyed is a better in his own district <laughs> in his own district is a better yeah. candidate than a literal sitting statewide office who has a statewide <laughs> office holder who has won a statewide race, a statewide general election, is just so preposterous and so si- it's just silly. I mean, it's just, the, John Fetterman is literally the lieutenant governor of Pennsylvania. He has already yeah. won one contested general election. The notion that Connor Lamb, who has never run even in a statewide race, is would have been a better candidate i think is not only idiotic but then of course belied by the fact that he got shellacked in his own party's primary the first time he ever ran statewide yeah no absolutely i just totally agree i think this they just so badly want progressives to lose that even when that's who who you're gonna have to support if your vote blue no matter who now they're already saying well it's just not gonna happen it can't happen instead of hey how do we rally behind this guy and make sure he wins, which is what they instruct progressives to do when it doesn't right, go it's progressives' a, it's a, way? It's because they have a di- – I mean, our, it's well, it's because they're corrupt, but it's also they have a different <laughs> yeah. premise. Of, they have a different premise for what a swing voter is. They – I think if you take them at their word, which I obviously don't, 
if you separate out the corruption. Their political pragmatism premise is that the swing voter is an affluent, uh, sort of independent voter who hasn't exactly figured out if they like the Republicans or Democrats. It was Chuck Schumer in 2016 who said, you know, for every working class uh, Western Pennsylvania voter we're going to lose, we're going to gain two former Republicans in the Philadelphia suburbs, right? So the sort of classic affluent uh, suburbanite uh, uh, sort of Republicanish uh, Rockefeller Republican, this is who the corporate wing of the party would have you believe is the swing voter. Now, I believe that in the age of MAGA politics, uh, violent insurrections at the Capitol and the like, that there aren't that many swing voters to start with anymore. So a lot of this is a turnout game. How much can you actually motivate your base? And I would argue that progressives do a better job of motivating the base because they're speaking to the actual agenda items that, that the base wants. And then also you could argue that the swing voter is, or at least can be, working class voters who the Democratic Party yep. alien, has been alienating huh. since NAFTA. And that Bernie Sanders, the, the the premise of Bernie Sanders as a strong general election nominee, I think the reason why Donald Trump's own pollster said that Bernie Sanders probably would have won in 2016 was because they understood that Bernie Sanders could speak to a different kind of swing voter. Bernie Sanders might have had some trouble uh, in the in some of the affluent suburbs, but he likely would have overperformed uh, among working class voters in places like Western Pennsylvania that Donald Trump won. And that, it, and that I would argue that economically progressive candidates have a better chance of pulling back some of the working class old Reagan Democratic support that used to exist, that the corporate part of the party has been alienating to tragic consequences for most of my lifetime. Um, David, I know you have to go soon, um, so I don't want to keep you too much longer. I just had one more thing, um, kind of a broader question that I want to ask you before we sign off, to kind of in light of everything we've talked about here. Um, just as someone who's been in the middle of these fights uh, in terms of like the kind of progressive wing trying to challenge the power centers in the Democratic Party, and the this whole this whole strategy of running, you know, progressive candidates into the Democratic Party in order to get them elected and to eventually kind of take over the party and to, to kind of reorient it in this more progressive direction. I know you still, you're still kind of excited about this prospect, but do you still believe like fundamentally that it's possible? No, to I wouldn't say I'm excited the, about it, but yeah. yeah. Uh, <laughs> but are do you still think it believe that it's possible to actually democratically reorient the, the, the democratic party into that more progressive direction to kind of wrestle power away from the establishment you know i talked about all these big these really important uh issues like in in don't look up the future of the planet the climate crisis even this kind of gradual process of running candidates into the democratic party we're still talking about a multi-years long project in order to even get to the idea of possibly gaining power ultimately do you think this is enough to deal with the crises that that america's facing or do you think there needs to be more i'm not sure it's multi-year in the sense that i think one thing recent history has proved is that things can change very fast so I, I'm not sure it's multi-year, but yes, it's it's not an easy slog. Look, I I am a I am in in many ways tactically agnostic, and I think people get hung up on can the Democratic Party get you know uh, remoored, changed, or do we need a third party? And frankly, one of, I find one of the most annoying 
uh, uh, kinds of folks out there, the people who say, oh, you know, both parties are corrupt. And anybody who thinks changing the Democratic Party is a worthy goal or can even be done is an idiot. And I'm a smart person because I vote third party. Listen, I, I am tactically agnostic. I'm about results. What's the fastest way to deal with climate change? What's the fastest fucking way to deal with the comet? Right. If that means a, a third party can win, great. If that means changing the Democratic Party is fast is faster, great. If that means both those things at the same time, great. I think we're stuck with with, with in a in a system right now that preferences a two party system, and the two parties basically suck. And I don't buy that people are are more enlightened or smarter or or um, more pure. Who say I'm never going to vote for a Democrat no matter what because both both parties are corrupt. Uh, voting is not a religious fucking experience, right? <laughs> it's not. A, it's not, a, and it's not an experience of self of self expression. If you think voting is self expression, you don't. Frankly, in my view, you don't really understand the system you're living in. Voting is one way to try to get what you want. So when you go and vote in a general election and you're faced with a uh, a, 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 a white nationalist fascist versus a shit Democrat. I don't think that that's not an enjoyable choice, but the system isn't giving you an enjoyable choice. And in that particular situation, you have to try to make a moral choice inside of a moral, uh, an immoral system, right? And, and if you know in your heart that third party infrastructure in that particular race hasn't been built and that thus voting for a third party is incinerating your vote and and arguably helping the fascists then why then doing that as an as a as a point of self-expression on your 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 supposed purity is in my view i mean you're welcome to do what you want in my view that's not a good decision because you're 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 mixing up what the voting experience is and is not. I think if there's going to be a third party in this country, a lot of work needs to go into actually building it and building it in the least glamorous places, not at the presidential level, but winning city council races, uh, winning uh, state legislative races. And I think there's coalition models where you've got DSA endorsing Democratic candidates. You've got the Working Families Party that put that goes into coalition, sometimes goes into opposition with the Democratic Party. And I think people who get hung up on, it goes back to this tactics and values thing, this, this idea that um, it's a fool's errand and everybody's impure and a terrible person for even thinking that it's worthwhile to try to change the Democratic Party. I just reject that. And I think it's narcissistic and I think it's bullshit. And, and, I, and I similarly think that anybody who thinks that honest to goodness, real third party building to try to push the Democratic Party to be better and to try to put up alternatives to the Democratic Party, I think anybody who thinks that is unacceptable is too tribal to think clearly about what the goal of politics really should be. And the goal of politics is just to get good policy that saves us from these emergencies. So to go back to your question, do I think the Democratic Party can be reformed? Yes, I think it can be reformed. Can it be reformed fast enough to deal with the crises we face? I don't know. Will it be hard to reform the Democratic Party? Absolutely. I've been at it for my whole life. It hasn't been a pleasant process. And arguably, it hasn't been successful. There have been success in fits and starts. But just because it's difficult doesn't mean it can't happen, right? No one said this was going to be easy, you know, and and I would argue that the easy way out is to say, you know, what, nothing can be done. Nobody can do anything. And anybody who tries to do anything uh, is an idiot. 
that's 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 basically well why don't you you know why don't you just kill yourself <laughs> right like if nothing matters at all you know then then what are you even doing <laughs> right like yeah, right. like I, like that's just cynicism I, it is like like and i get where it comes from but you can't you can't let yourself conclude uh that 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 nothing at all can be done i mean i i, I think there's a slim chance that that the kind of transformative change we need to happen can be done. I agree with that. But I just think like reforming the Democratic Party is one of many avenues to get change. Uh, coalition building with outside pressure groups, uh, DSA, WFP is another. Uh, union organizing in the workplace, that's another way. Uh, honest to goodness, third party building. Uh, I think that's can be worthwhile as well. I, I'm like an all of the above person. So I, I and 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 just because I'll, I'll conclude by saying this, just because I'm all of the above, it doesn't mean like I'm dumb or stupid. I mean, maybe I am dumb and stupid. I don't know or naive. But like, I don't think it means I'm 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 dumb to think that we should try to be doing all of these things and that and, and that and I don't think it's dumb to think that somebody is not. Uh, uh, more pure or better or more enlightened for thinking their tactic is better than other tactics. Like they're just tactics. Maybe we should do them all. Definitely. Absolutely. Um, I think that's a great point to close on. Uh, thank you so much, David, for joining us. Thanks, David. Uh, everyone check out The Lever. It's fantastic. They do amazing reporting. Uh, David, is there anything else you'd like to plug and where people find you and more of your work? No, uh, thank you so much for having me, both of you. And uh, you can find our work at levernews.com. I hope people will go check it out. Hopefully you'll become a, people will become subscribers. Uh, and listen, we're going to be launching our own flagship podcast, weekly podcast soon to go over the reporting that we do on uh, each week. And so hope, I'd love to have you guys on as guests. And I would love to, um, I'd love for people who are listening to this to subscribe to that. It's coming out in the next, uh, we're starting it in the next few weeks. And um, listen, thanks for having me. I, I appreciate the discussion. It's fantastic. Great. Great to hear. Absolutely. Thank you, David. Thank you.